Welcome to With You Every Step, the solo travel podcast that explores, explains, and hopefully inspires you to travel the world by yourself. I'm your host, Michelle Lee. Today's guest is a travel god, and he is the co-founder of the Travel Bibles. Have you guessed who I'm talking about or what I'm talking about? Think of one of the biggest travel guidebook companies in the world. Yes, Lonely Planet. Tony Wheeler is here to talk all about travel and his new book, Island of Australia. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come in and talk to me. Good afternoon. I have a very high standard of my guests on my podcast, apparently, because you also have an Order of Australia. Oh, I'm sure lots of people you, um, you look around, you see their little collar pins. They, they do sort of dish them out for assorted reasons. Oh, don't be like that. Nothing, it's not easy to get an order of Australia. Nothing special at all. We're going to talk about your book, but let's go back to when you first started travelling. So you first started travelling in the 70s with your wife. I'd done a lot of travel before that, but big trip that led to the creation of Lonely Planet, that was in the 70s. And I think big trips are always are always ones that stick in your mind. And so, yeah, that was a, that was a, a big trip. And uh, as a result, it's stuck in my mind ever since. But it certainly wasn't the first time I'd ever been traveling. Where was the first time you traveled? Oh, God, no. Well, how, do, how do we define, you know, you, you leave, the, leave the house to walk around the block to school and do a little detour on the way? Is that travel? I don't know. No, I don't think that's travel. <laughs> Otherwise, oh, I think it's everybody probably, does that. Sure, and everybody travels. I don't think I actually did get lost all that much. Kids who get lost, well, that's really travelling, I think. <laughs> so where was your first trip away from your comfort zone then? Away from maybe family? Did you yeah, do a trip I, by I think, yourself? I think trips with family are never really trips. And I, I'm always impressed by people who, you know, set off at the age of... I, I met a guy in, um, in London a couple of years ago. He was, we were doing a thing about the hippie trail and the Asia Overland trip at the the V&A Museum, there were several of us talking and this guy just blew us all out of the water. When he was 16, he'd, um, he'd decided with some, he was living in London, he was going to hitchhike with some friends to Greece and um, that went down quite, maybe he was 15, it was, <laughs> he was young anyway. And it went down quite well and he got back and the next um, summer he told his parents, look, um, that, that was fun last year, last summer, I think this summer I'm going to hitchhike to India. He was 16 at this point, so the trip earlier would be when he was 15. Um, and what did his parents say? Oh, go ahead. He said, look, it, it might take me longer than the school holidays. If, if I don't get back before school starts, make some excuse and I'll miss the next year and go back to school in a year's time. Well, he, he got across Europe. He got as far as, as Yugoslavia and his two mates decided they'd had enough and turned around and went back. And he thought, why? Well, I can't go back. What I, I told everybody I'm going to hitchhike to India. I can't sort of give it away now. So he carried on and eventually he did get to India. He got beyond India. He got to Kathmandu. And I, I, was, I, I sort of corresponded with him a bit afterwards. That was such a great tale. I mean, starting with what were your parents thinking? Yeah. But on beyond that, we, the, the, this whole sort of session at the, the V&A was um, sex and drugs and rock and roll. Amazingly, he, he's now working in rock and roll. He's a look, manages various bands and does their publicity and stuff many, many years later. But he said at that time, he couldn't afford, he didn't have Walkmans in the 70s, you know. He said, I, I didn't have any access to music. He said, and as a result, I've really got no memories of, of music from that trip at all, whereas I had lots of memories from the music of the 70s when, when I did that trip a year before him. And eventually, after he'd been at Kathmandu for a while and, you know, lost many kilos of weight and, um, and definitely wasn't back in time for school to restart. He, uh, and of course, in those days, you couldn't just phone you. you didn't, this was before email, before mobile phones. If you wanted to make a phone call, you had to queue up for a day or two to make it. So he sent a telegram to his father and said, Dad, I'm, I'm in Kathmandu. I haven't heard, you haven't heard me for a while. I'm still alive. I'd like to come back to, back to Britain. Can you loan me 40 quid? He chose 40 quid because he'd heard that in, if you had a fake student card and you were in Istanbul... You could get a ticket to to London for twenty quid. So if I had if I had forty quid, twenty quid to get me from Kathmandu to um, Istanbul, twenty quid to fly home, and his dad did send him forty quid, and he did get back amazingly. 
So there was a lot more to this story, but I thought, you know, that's what 16-year-olds should do. That puts us in our place. I'm always impressed by 16-year-olds who set off on that sort of adventure. Do you think today a 16-year-old still should do that? Oh, look, I, I'm not going to, you know, t- t- tell you go out and risk your life. But <laughs> but if they did, I'd be impressed. Yeah. I, I always... I'm impressed when 18-year-olds do it now. Yeah, look, I'm impressed with 18-year-olds too, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm all for um, youthful travel. Yeah, so your first trip, let's go back to that. I want to know, do you remember your first trip? Did you do a oh. solo trip ever by yourself? Oh, yeah, look, I, I, I travelled around Europe a bit when I was 18, I guess, 18 or 19, and... I, I lived in America for a while when I was a kid because my father was working there. And then when we went back to we went back to Britain, I was one year going back to see my friends in the States. And I ended up, I couldn't, they, were, they, were, they lived near Washington, D.C. And I, for some reason, there was some sort of strike and I couldn't get there. So I ended up getting a flight to Montreal. And I ended up having to go from Montreal to Washington, D.C. I think I was 17 at the time. But come on, these things are all, you go to a bus station and the buses go. It's all possible. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I like to get across in this podcast is that I want people to realise that no matter where you are, there's normally always someone that's going to help you. You go to a bus station and they're going to say to you, well, what bus do you need? Where do you need to go? Go here. There is always someone to help you. Yeah, yeah. The the, the kindness of strangers often kicks in. You know, I've always said that you don't really even need language. The reason you're in a hotel is you want a room. The reason you're in a restaurant is you want food. The reason you're at a bus station is you want a bus. You know, someone will point you in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, the big trip yeah. was 72 and uh, we set out from London and we eventually ended up many months later in Australia. There so you go. at that time, you were with your wife and yeah. you were going to go through a lot of different countries. Did anyone ever say to you, you're crazy, why are you doing this? No, everyone said, great idea. Really? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, even today, sometimes you'll get somewhere and you'll think, is this okay? But you generally pretty quickly pick up whether a place is okay or not. It's all okay. It generally is all okay. I just find that I travel a lot by myself and people are so negative before I leave where people are always saying to me, why are you doing this? Why are you going by yourself? Aren't you scared? And it's the most common thing that I hear. So I think back in those days, I thought people would have been more so like that because they didn't have the understanding of the internet that we have today. Well, I, oh, come on, that's the other way around. You know, the, the understanding of the internet is to scare you to death. Yeah. It's, it's not anything, you know, sensible. That's no, very I true. Think probably there's a, <laughs> it's probably worked the other way, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, ignorance is a, a wonderful blessing in many ways. Yeah. So as you were travelling through, did you think, I wish I had a guidebook that would help me? Oh, yeah. I, I, I think, you know, anybody with guidebooks or not, or any, you're always looking for information. You're, you're always thinking, where, where do, where's the bus station? What time does the bus leave? Is there going to be somewhere to stay? Should I go to this restaurant or that restaurant? Um, how do I ask for whatever's edible? How do I get, how do I not get what I don't want? This sort of thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, if, you know, in those days it was guidebooks. Now people reach for their phone and look it up on something there. But guidebooks would have been useful in those days. and They weren't available. No. And so that's what led to that's, your... That led to Lonely Planet. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there was information available. I remember there was a thing called the Bit Guide. And the Bit Guide was the sort of the, the nearest thing to a, a guidebook for what we were doing. Very much an underground thing in London. And yeah, I mean, if you got a copy of the Bit Guide, at least it was some sort of starting point for information. So they weren't easy to get? Oh, no, no, they, they were one pound. You just had to go to the bit office in um, Notting Hill. And, and of course, you know, this was in the days when Notting Hill was a more interesting place than it is today. It was, Notting Hill was a sort of edgy place in those days, which of course today it is not. All right. And so on that big trip that you did, you went across... You, you went across that. You, it was pretty standard, you know, the... I'd say standard, there were all sorts of different routes. But you, you eventually did leave Europe. And for most people, leaving Europe meant crossing through Istanbul. Some people would have gone down through the Greek islands and gone across to Turkey somewhere there. Someone would have gone to Cyprus and to Lebanon or whatever. But for the majority of people would have ended up in Istanbul. Istanbul was a sort of stepping stone into Asia. And then they would have carried on across Turkey. Some people would have gone down into Syria and Iraq. But Which way did you go? We, we did this absolutely standard thing. We went across Istanbul, across Turkey, into Iran, around Iran, into Afghanistan, 
And Afghanistan was fine in those days, of course. Okay. It was a few years later before it became a disaster zone. Through, through Afghanistan, out into Pakistan, across Pakistan, into India, up to Kathmandu. Everybody was heading to Kathmandu. <laughs> um, and then down through, if you can, a lot of people, Kathmandu was the end of the line. That's where you, you did a U-turn and headed back to Europe. But uh, if you were heading on to Australia, then you carried on to Southeast Asia and down through, as lots of people do today, down mm. through Southeast Asia, ended up in Australia. Amazing. And then you fell in love in Australia? And that's why you stayed here or? No, not at all. We stayed in Australia for a year. And during that year, we did the first Lonely Planet guidebook in Sydney. And at the end of the year, we thought, well, that's it. We've seen Australia, back to Europe. Left Australia thinking we'd gone forever. Didn't think we were coming back at all. And it took us 12 months to get from Sydney to Singapore. And in Singapore, we thought, oh, maybe we'll have another year in Australia. And went back to, we thought we've had a year in Sydney. Let's have a year in Melbourne. And been stuck here ever since. So... <laughs> So Melbourne, you know, in no way was Melbourne the sort of the, the first choice. It wasn't, Melbourne was not, um, there was no conscious decision to spend my life in Melbourne, just an accident. Well, it must have had something that kept you here though. Well, yeah, it, it was. You know, first of all, it was Maureen and my wife decided to go to university. So uh -huh. you know, then well, we, we worked, we both worked for a year and then she decided to go to university. So then we were stuck for a while while she was at university. And by the end of that time, so then we're four years into Melbourne. You know, we had the little business. The business had a few employees, and then you then you're stuck. Being Lonely Planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know that it was we were stuck here. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't any conscious decision. Anybody says, you know, you must love Melbourne. You've been here all these years. Nope. If someone said, you know, <laughs> you've got to leave, you get on the next flight out, and you can never come back, I'd be saying bye bye, Melbourne. Really? Is there any place that you have that feeling with, though? No, I, I'd be, I'm happy most places, you know, if you send me there. and <laughs> I, I always think if you have an open mind about places, almost anywhere will be interesting in some fashion. Some places, you know, some places will be much more interesting to live in than others. But since I've been living in Melbourne all those years, I've, I've also, well, I've, I've spent quite a lot of time in London, but I've also lived for a year in San Francisco and I've lived for a year in, in Paris. San Francisco and Paris, at the end of the year in both places, if someone had said, you cannot go to Ma back to Melbourne, you must stay here in San Francisco or Paris, I would have said, fine, they're great cities, I love them. Yeah, I love San Fran. I'm not a big fan of Paris. I found it very confusing and people sending me the wrong way all the time. That's good, you know, getting sent, <laughs> getting sent the wrong way is a great way to find your way around places. Find something new. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think so, so much on that day. I was with my dad and we were trying to find the Eiffel Tower and from where we were, we couldn't see it. I know everyone is like, why didn't you just look up? I'm like, where we were, we couldn't find it. And they just kept sending us the wrong way that we yeah. were literally going in circles. And that yeah. again was before all technology. There is a movie and I'm trying to think of the name of it. Well-known woman in it. Was it the woman who was in um, Sleepless in Seattle? Or Meg Ryan? Meg Ryan. I think it might have been Meg Ryan. And she's, uh, she's in Paris and, I, you know, I forget what the movie was about. She's all over Paris and she, for no, for no good reason, she really wants to see the Eiffel Tower and she never gets to it, but it's constantly in the background. You see out of the window of a taxi, there it is. You look out the window of a restaurant, there it is. You sort of glance between two <laughs> buildings, there it is. There's about a million glimpses of the Eiffel Tower in this damn film. Never stops popping up. Yeah, no, just not where I was at the time when I needed to be able to see it. No, no. <laughs> So you've just done a new book because you've got many books, haven't you? How many books do you have in total? I've written lots of them with Lonely Planet, but the, the, the most recent books I've done have not been with Lonely Planet. Although I've got something coming up with Lonely Planet at the moment. I did a book two years ago with Melbourne University Press, a little sort of selection of essays on travel and why we travel. Just in the last month or two, I had a book published for the National Library in Canberra called Islands of Australia. Which I have now learnt there's more than 8,000, which I didn't even know that. I, I've got to say, I didn't either. And, you know, it's easy to look it up. If you look it up yeah. on Wikipedia, it'll tell you instantly and exactly the number that I, I was told there was, 8,222, I think it is. It's a lot of islands. It's and a lot of islands. Yeah. It's not up there with the... Actually, you know, the, remarkably, if you'd asked me who had, where, which country had the most islands, I'd probably have said Indonesia, which... Indonesia has, I think, over 20,000 or something. Oh, do they? They have so, a lot of islands. I had a conversation with my family yesterday about this, and my sister-in-law is from the Philippines. And my brother said, oh, what about the Philippines? Do they have more or less? Do you yeah. know the answer? They, they have less than They Indonesia. have less. There's another country that has more than Indonesia, Sweden. 
No. And I couldn't believe that either. It, it, it astonished me. But if you, you look it up, I've flown over Sweden recently. And when you look down, there are a lot of islands, lots of little, you know, there's places where there's just hundreds of them dotted there. Well, what and makes so, up an island, yeah, though? Yeah, good question. I didn't even check that. I, I just accepted the figure 8,000. <laughs> And I, you know, it, obviously it has to be above sea level all the time. If it's submerged, then it's a submerged rock. You know, it just pops up. That's, so it's got to be above sea level, even at high tide. And then there must be some sort of measurement. And I, I don't know what that measurement is. So yeah, because I was thinking, does it have to have dirt as well as sand? Or can no, it just no. be a full sand island? It could be, uh, it could be a full rock island. I mean, one, one of the oh. things that, I, you know, Australia has all sorts of different islands. And some of them are obviously sandy islands, Fraser Island. You know, there's no, no rock there. It's all sand. And there's various other Queensland islands that are all sand. And there's a fair few on the Barrier Reef that are above sea level all the time, but they're just sand. You know, I, I saw quite a few when I was researching this, in the, particularly in the Recherche Archipelago, which is south of Esperance off the coast of WA. A lot of rocky islands there, which are just solid rock, nothing but rock. Quite a few of them, you just could not... You really couldn't contemplate how somebody could land on them because mm. they just go straight into the sea. You know, where, where would you pull your boat up and how would you get up the side of that rock face? Very few of them really run inhabited. Out of the 8,200 odd, I would guess there's probably two or 300 that we define as inhabited okay. in some fashion. Lots and lots of them are uninhabited and lots of them are uninhabitable. So did you come up with this or someone came up with this for you to write this book about the 8,000 islands? Yeah, the National Library just approached me about it and said, you know, we, we want to do this book. Would you like to write it? And then and you that, said, do I really have to go visit all these islands? That sounds awful. Well, well I, I didn't. I mean, the reason they approached me was they knew I'd been to a lot of the islands. I, I wrote a book for Lonely Planet on the islands of the, it was called the Islands of the Great Barrier Reef. So that, you know, covered Queensland, basically. Yeah. And I'd been to a lot of others, you know, Flinders and King and Bruni and Rottnest and Kangaroo. I'd, I'd been to a lot of the other islands as well. And this was not a guidebook, which meant, you know, you travelled around and researched it. It was a, essentially a sit in front of your computer and do lots of research book. And I, I used a lot of research stuff from the National Library. They went through their records and copied lots of stuff off and sent it to me. So... I had lots of help in that respect, but it was not a, it was not a traveling travel book, although it is essentially a travel book in many ways. Mm, for people but, that don't know about all the islands, I'm sure it would fasc- be. Fascinating. It was fascinating for me. I, I became so engrossed in it that I ended up going to quite a few islands that I hadn't been to in the course of island travels before. And some of the most interesting ones were those ones that popped up subsequently. Okay, can you tell me about some of those ones? I well, did hear that we have a pirate, or we had a pirate in we Australia. Did, yeah, yeah, we had one back in the 1800s, Black Jack, who was a pirate based in, I, I mentioned the Recherche Archipelago, this archipelago of basically uninhabited islands off the coast of Esperance. And, Which um, is in Western Australia? Western Australia, yeah. It's mm-hmm. sort of halfway across the, partway across the Nullarbor between Perth on one end, Adelaide the other, and Esperance in the middle. And he would, yeah, he was a pirate. And of course, we didn't have much pirates, you know, typically are after gold on the Spanish main. And that's what the pirate ships hold up. But we didn't have much of that around Australia. So most of what he plundered was sealskins. Oh. And we, of course, you know, Australia, Australians did a serious job on trying to wipe out seals. There was lots of money in sealskins. And what did seal- they use them for? Oh, they made wonderful coats, beautifully you know, removed from the seal, and then they were shipped off to China and um, sold for large amounts of money. Wow, I did not know fur, that. Fur seals. They were a big business, and you know they, they were such a big business that we did a pretty good job of trying to wipe out seals around Australia. And there's quite a few islands we succeeded. We just totally wiped out the seal population. Oh, that's awful. And there was, was a pirate that was going around and stealing the was, all of yeah. the skins. They stole them from the seals and he stole them from the sealers. And then he would go and take them to China? No, no. What would, it, what, what would he do he would with probably them? probably send them up to Sydney, you know, and the, <laughs> sell them on the seal futures market. So there'd, be seal, <laughs> there'd be seal skin dealers in Sydney who would take them off his hands. Wow, I did he not probably, know that. I think he did a bit of sealing himself as well. He wasn't, you know... He saw a seal, he'd, he'd kill it. Oh, the poor seal. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so your books are really detailed. 
Did you spend a lot of time in one location to try and find all those places that are documented in the books? And I got to you know say immediately because I'm not you know Lonely Planet. I've been out of it ten years now, so mm-hmm. it's not my it's not my baby. It's not my responsibility. Yes and no. I mean, we did do a lot of research on those books, but it was all it was done at high speed. You, know, you can't hang around. And I, I remember people saying, "Well, did you sleep in every hotel?" Of course not. You know, if you're mm. only in a town for you might. You're in a town for two nights. You might sleep in two different hotels, but you wouldn't, you know, if you write up 10 or 20, you don't stay in 10 or 20, and nor can you eat in every restaurant. But I, I've always said with restaurants, you know, you eat, eat in as many as you can. So you might have breakfast in one, lunch in another, dinner in a third. You walk by a restaurant, you look in the front window. If there's noise and activity and people look happy, the food's good. If you walk by and people are looking down morosely at their plate or, or, or it's empty, Forget it, you know. So you actually become a really good stalker. Is that what you're telling me? Standing in windows watching people? (laughs) 100%. You know, the first thing, to this day, you know, if I I go by a restaurant and it's empty, I'm not sure I want to eat there. Yeah. There has to be some reason it's empty. Yeah, it is true. If I I was running a restaurant, I'd push everybody to the seats by the front window. Yeah, which a lot of places do. When you go in there, when you go in early and they try and get you to sit near the front, I'm like, I don't want everyone watching me, standing there watching me in case they're making a guidebook. (laughs) Absolutely. That's why they they do it. And so so they should, you know, they let you escape in the back out of view. How much advertising does that do? And, you know, I think we all feel like that when you walk past a restaurant that you see it's empty, you go, oh, I don't know go in there yeah. but then saying that i have been to restaurants that are full and i've also thought oh why is this full i don't like this food yeah absolutely also some of that could just be it's that's not to your taste yeah i you know it could be it's having a bad night who knows i mean it's staff rest, haven't shown up all that's that often stuff. the restaurants reason. are mysterious things yeah. and so then with the tourist things that you add to the books of you know, climbing mountains, all that kind of stuff. Would you often sit down and talk with people and oh, find yeah, yeah. their experiences? Absolutely. From the very from day one, the the best source of information are other travellers. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the old days, it, when there weren't all those guidebooks available, it was you were travelling east and they were travelling west, and you bumped into each other and exchanged notes, basically. I even find still now, even when I was in South America last year. I did, still did the same thing, you know, when you get to a hostel, everyone's there, everyone talks about what they've done and then that's where oh. you get your idea of, well, okay, I did see that we could do this, but that sounds really expensive, but you've done it a cheaper way. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The reason I recommend hostels is because of that, because you can sit down and talk to people. Yes. Yeah, there's sources of information. Yeah. yeah, where in a hotel I find people aren't so open about it's different, talking. Different ball game, yeah. Did you stay in a lot of hostels? Yeah, I've, I've done everything, you know, you, you name it, I've, I've stayed in it. Not so much these days. I'm sort of beyond. Although, you know, there's places you go to and you, you've got no choice about it. You are going to be shoved in together. And there's lots of hotels where you do sort of sit, with, sit around with other people and, and talk. It's not, it's not exclusively that hotels are you're in your room and I'm in mine. I'm not going to ask you how many countries you've been to because I'm assuming it's a lot. But is there countries that you haven't been to? Oh, yeah, lots. I've got friends who've been to every country. In fact, there was something a, a, a friend in... Just a couple of days ago, sent me a, a story about some Brazilian guy who claims he set a new record for going to all the countries, and he didn't do it in a year. It took him more than a year. Oh, in the quickest way. Quickest way. Yeah, I it's have seen that, but then I'm like, what are you considering being in the country? Like oh, literally God. crossing the border and saying, "I've been in the country." Or going to the airport, even worse. Oh yeah, which I don't consider being in the country. You can't tell people you've been in a country if you haven't been able to experience at least something of the culture. Yeah. Like I yeah. think that has a lot to do with being in a country. Yeah. You know, some people have said, you know, well, you've got to stay overnight. But then, mm, you no. know, who gets an invitation to stay at the Vatican City? You've got to know the Pope if you want to, unless you decide to sleep in, sleep in one of the church pews. Um, <laughs> no, I, have you done that? <laughs> no, but I, but I would say I've been to the Vatican. I, I've looked up at the Sistine Chapel. So yes, you've been there. Yeah, and I, I think a day trip is enough, but I think you have to experience something. Do something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about being in an air- airport and considering nah, it being there when... That doesn't count. No, I don't think it does either. So do you have some stories for me? I often like to teach people about what to do if they're in a situation and they feel maybe like they're threatened or uncomfortable. Have you been in any situations like that? Generally in the backseat of taxis, and the, the answer is tell the driver, slow down. 
doesn't always help, but uh, it's always worth uh, worth trying. Yeah. Yeah, most of the scary experiences of my life have been sitting in the back seat of taxis with nobody <laughs> threatening me at all, just the the driver threatening life and limb and other drivers, basically. Yeah, which happens in a lot of countries. <laughs> yeah, including <laughs> Melbourne, I might add. Yes, exactly. But you haven't been in a situation where you've ever been scammed? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been. What have you been scammed with? Can you tell me? Oh, God knows. I, I think we were saying earlier on that you, you pretty quickly get a, a grip, an idea of how places are. And I remember once coming into Guatemala City and I, we'd been in Guatemala and been up to Antigua, which mm-hmm. is the place everybody goes to study Spanish. It's a very oh. popular Spanish, Spanish teaching city and it's delightful. And a lot of people, you know, they come in, they fly into Guatemala City and they, there's a bus that could takes you straight to Antigua. You never sort of stop in Guatemala City. But nor did we. We went straight up there. and you know, Yeah, stay. I'm trying to think. I don't think I did either. I was on a, a tour and we were on a bus and I don't think we did. Yeah. Anyway, and then we went here and went there. And then towards the end of this trip, we were coming back to Guatemala to just for a day or so and then flying out of Guatemala City where we'd flown into. Came in from, you know, I forget where it was, El Salvador or Belize or something, and arrived in Guatemala City fairly late in the evening and went to a hotel and then we're going out to um, get some food and you know it was I don't know late late in the evening and it was dark and the streets were empty and you just did not feel very nice Mm. and we we eventually nothing happened we went out we found a restaurant we ate we came back to the hotel next morning came out and in the morning when you know people were going to work and it was daylight and the streets were crowded and it felt absolutely fine and you think, this is the same city. Why did I feel so uneasy in this city last night? Part of it is crowds are always much much more friendly and welcoming than empty streets. Empty streets, you're always thinking, a bit like those restaurants with no people in it. You know, the food yeah. must be bad. The streets must be dangerous. Who knows? They're probably not. But, you know, you, you get that feeling with empty streets. Yeah, but a lot of Central and South America, you are warned to not go out at night time, especially yeah. by yourself, especially as a woman. And sometimes there's very good reasons for those warnings. You know, I've been to been to a fair few places. You know, I, I, I think of in the last couple of years, one of the, it wasn't really funny, but it shows how things work in some places. I was in Port Moresby. And where is that? Uh, Papua New Guinea. Port Moresby is not the world's um, most welcoming and friendly city. It's the rascals. Great word for people, for ne'er-do-wells. Anyway, there's, they've got a rascal problem in Port Moresby. And, you know, you get, you get lots of warnings about don't go out at night, you know, get a, get a taxi straight from your hotel or whatever. I was going to the, they've got a very good museum. I was going to the museum on, on a weekend and I got a taxi and the taxi drivers, I, I really got a lot of time for Portmore, for PNG taxi drivers. They're very friendly and welcoming and you, they always, you get in the front seat, you know, and they always put their hand out and said, hello, my name is, Aww. you know, introduce themselves, shake hands with them. So anyway, I got a taxi driver and we're driving off to the museum and chatting about this and that and about the rascals. And the museum's sort of on the edge of town and you go down the, this road and then you turn off into this driveway that takes you into the museum. It's almost like it's in a park. The driver said to me, he said, I'm not going to turn straight into the driveway because there's a gate inside the driveway. The gate should be open because I think they're pretty sure whatever time it was, Saturday afternoon, the museum's open now, but just in case the gate's closed, because it does happen that you turn in, you find the gate's closed, and before you can put the taxi in reverse and back out, you're hijacked. <gasps> oh! <laughs> and I thought, well, this is great. Here I am going to see the National Museum of the capital city, and we're worried about being hijacked on the entrance to the museum. So he said, what I'll do is I'll just drive straight by and as we go by the entrance, we'll look in and make sure the gate's open. So we did. We drove by and, you know, sure enough, the gate was open. He did a U-turn, We went back and drove in. But, you know, when you've got to do that sort of, of you're thinking twice about Port Moresby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm sure then you had this feeling the whole time that you were there of uncomfortableness. And no, like, no, I was no? quite, you know, in the central city, it was generally okay. And I wandered around, you know, not going too many down. Central City, there aren't too many dark alleys. Yeah, but I, I do, city like Port Moresby, I would pay more attention. Kinshasa in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah, I was very cautious there. I, you know, I did look over my shoulder quite a lot. So you do um, approach cities with their... Yeah, where I felt very uncomfortable in 
Uganda, we had an incident in Uganda where I think personally it was an inside job with the tour company that we were with and with the hotel because there is barbed wire everywhere. There is a security guy with a gun and the hotel. That tells you something. Yeah. And the, the barbed wire was cut and the guy was let in. The security guard was just happened to sleep through the whole time. And the guy got into the room and it wasn't me. It was someone else on our tour and ended up stealing all their belongings while they were sleeping. They woke up and he ended up getting away without anybody catching him. So yeah, Yeah. that made me feel very uncomfortable. And then from then on every night, my bag was up against the door. It was very scary. Yeah. Yeah. Not good. No, but you didn't have any of those kinds of things happening. Oh, look, I think if you travel long enough, you end up having something stolen at some point. Basically, every time I've had something stolen, I always slap myself on the side of the head and say, that was careless of you. I've I've only once. So had... you feel like that it was your fault that you. Yeah, you yeah, up... yeah. Okay. You know, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't careful enough. I, you know, and I, sadly, I've had a few occasions of not being careful enough. The only occasion I've actually been not robbed of violence was I, yeah. but where I was actually threatened with a knife, and that you know, does make you think this could turn out badly. And your response? Did you just give them what they wanted? I gave them what they wanted. Yeah, yeah I thought I'm not, I don't, I don't want that knife stuck in my stomach particularly. No. No. What country was that in, do you remember? Colombia, yeah. you know, Bogota. And, you know, and I'd been there before and I'd been there several times and, you know, had no problem at all. And then on this one occasion, wrong place. And were you by it? yourself? Oh, I was I was on my way to see somebody and I, I was just messing around taking some photographs and I, I, you know, I looked back on it, you know, and I think foolish of myself, you know, I should have, put the, I should have done this and that. And I should have done various things. There's an expression, it's a sort of a slang Spanish expression in Colombia, and it goes on lines of give someone a papaya. When you give someone a papaya, you put yourself in the situation that you just sort of hand over the goods. Um, and I, I gave someone a papaya. Okay. Yeah. But I mean, that didn't ruin your experience in No, no, I had a great Columbia. time. No, I had a great time there. Really enjoyed it. I think that's a good thing because I think a lot of people do then freak out and want to leave and never want to go back. Yeah, yeah. It's a foolish thing to do. Because then you had amazing experience after yeah, that. Roll, roll with it. Yeah, I think that's pretty good advice. <laughs> I don't know if everyone would feel like that after a well, you know, knife was we're, we're, on them. We're all sort of, you know, we're, we're being casual here. But I mean, mm-hmm. and 99.99% of the time, nothing bad does happen. And mm-hmm. the one or 2% of the time when things does happen, something bad does happen, it's pickpockets. And, you know, and, you think, and if it's, you're pickpocketed, well, you were foolish, weren't you, to have something available they can get their hand on. You know, the, the few occasions when things go seriously wrong are a very, very small minority. But nevertheless, I feel you know, really sad about people that does happen to touch, Again, touch wood. Yes. And, and like what we say is to just, you know, have your wits about you and yep. be smart. And, you know, that's yep. all you can do. Yep. What would you consider one of your favourite islands of Australia? There were quite a few I liked, but the mm. one that I was really impressed by was Dirk Hartog. Ooh, um, which I've ended, never heard of it. Aha, uh-huh, good. Off the coast of Western Australia, really fascinating exploration history, named after its first European visitor, Dirk, Mr. Dirk Hartog, a Dutch explorer. But a number of other explorers turned up there as well, including one of the people who I really have a lot of time for, and that's French woman, Rose de Freycinet, who stowed away on her, um, her husband's ship and oh, he didn't know she was there. Well, she, he knew she was oh. there. The rest of the people on the ship didn't know she because was there. Because she was a woman and she wasn't she meant was to woman. be there? She certainly was not spent, meant to be there. And, you know, her husband, Louis de Freycinet, he, you know, he would have lost his um, position commanding this expedition if the French government had found out. So he had to keep her hidden until they were well out of France. And then she sailed around the world with him for the next three years. And as a result, she did not become the first woman to sail around the world. There had been an earlier French stowaway, but she was certainly one of the one of the first women to sail around the world. Yeah. And um, well, that was a big risk, right? Because if she got found, she could have been killed. Is, do you think well, that could have happened? Well, not killed. No, but, you know, they wouldn't have killed her. No, but you know, the if the French government had found out she was on the ship, they might have sent you know something else out to chase him down for the first day or two and say tell her off the boat, back to Paris, behave yourself. Okay. Um, well, if the you, risk wasn't that big, why didn't more women take it? Well, you've got to find someone who's going to let you stow away with them. You know, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> not easy to get on board. Um, anyway, she sailed around the world and, you know, she does have a Dirk Hartog connection. So, you know, that's really rather nice. And 
I was very impressed by her, and I she does she I think she appears very briefly in the book, but I've actually written some stuff about her subsequently because I, I was just blown away by by what she did. And she was very young; she was twenty three when she did this. Wow! Yeah, and do you know what years? I could look it up. It was um, eighteen seventeen or something. Oh, yeah, early eighteen hundreds. Yeah, two hundred years ago. Great story, anyway. Uh, but Dirk Hartog, yeah, it's a and it's an outback island. You know, if you you drive around there in your four-wheel drive, you think, well, I'm in the outback, but you're not in central Australia. You're off the coast of Western Australia. And it's got – you can camp out there, get your four-wheel drive across. There's so how do you get your four-wheel drive across? There's a little – it's actually – at the southern end, it's only a kilometre or so from the mainland, but that, but it's a four-wheel drive track to get to that point. So you, you definitely – you can't drive there in a normal – you need four-wheel drive. But uh, once you're on the island – there's a little, I say a little resort. There's a place with about half a dozen, ten rooms. You can stay there and it's just a delightful place to stay. The whole island I just thought was wonderful. I was really blown away by it. Is it small, big? Oh, it's big. I was with a friend and we, we drove up to the far north of the island to see the point where Mr. Hartog landed and where Louis de Freycinet landed as well, up to the, what's it called, inscription point or something. Spent all day driving up there and back. We covered about 200 kilometres. Never saw another car. It's not exactly crowded. So if someone is coming over from another country to Australia, what islands do you recommend they should visit? We've got a large variety of islands. And I, I was, I was definitely taken by Derek Hartog. But if you're going to go there, it's either charter a little plane to fly. Yeah, I was going to say, it doesn't sound like it's easy to get to. No, or you need a four-wheel drive. You know, that sort of cuts out people doing it on a sort of casual basis. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let me name a half dozen islands that are great. Rotnest Island off Perth, off Fremantle. The quokkas, right? The quokkas are there, yeah. <laughs> if you don't know what a quokka is, Google it because they're super cute. And they've, they've learned how to do selfies, which has got to be recommended for any marsupial. Rotnest is a popular Sunday afternoon getaway for Fremantle and Perth citizens. So it's, it's not exactly inaccessible. It's extraordinarily accessible. And I'd been there many years ago and I went back because of this book and I thought it was wonderful. I spent three days there and just had a great time. You rent bicycles and there's hardly any cars on the island. So it's a great island for cycling around. And it's big enough to be you know, a ride from one end of the island to the other is a good little ride. And there's accommodation on there? There's accommodation of all sorts of, you know, more expensive and cheaper. And it's just a delightful island, I think. I, I recommend Rotnest as an, as an easily accessible island, sort yeah. of the opposite of Dirk Hartog. Mm-hmm. Up the Barrier Reef, I, I've often said, and I do say in the book, you know, you've got a choice of islands. And the, the remarkable thing about our Barrier Reef, Queensland resorts, is half of them have been wi- wiped out. And they've, they're either wiped out by tropical cyclones that come in and blow the resort down, or they're wiped out by red ink on the accountant's profit and loss sheet because they've lost so much money. Mm-hmm. So they, they'd certainly come and go. But if you're going up the Barrier Reef... Right at the sort of southern end of it, Heron Island, a little resort and uh, a great island, people going with kids because the turtles come in and lay their eggs and the turtles hatch out and the birds nest and the, the snorkeling around the island or scuba diving a little bit further out is great. So Heron Island, you know, and it's a perfect uh, ver- version of a coral cay, you know, it's just, just barely above sea level and a reef around it. That one, at the northern end of the Barrier Reef, Lizard Island, which is oh, a mountain to Lizard Island. A mountainous island, and you can go on the cheap, you can camp there if you can find your way across, or you can go at the opposite extreme, spend a huge amount of money in a very luxurious resort. Ooh. It's got the Captain Cook history, it's got enough beaches, so every room in the luxurious resort can have its own beach. Oh, it's got wow. great snorkeling and scuba diving, it's got all sorts of things going, and it's got big lizards. That's why it's called Lizard Island. And do you get there from Cairns? You get there from Cairns, yeah. Yeah. In the middle, Hinchinbrook Island, a wonderful coastal walk. Yeah, lots of, lots of islands on the Barrier Reef. We've got, we've got Mud Island in Port Phillip Bay, which is quite easy to get to. Is We're down here, down south. Yeah, in, in the middle of the bay. I've never heard of Mud <laughs> Island and I'm from Melbourne. <laughs> well, you, you're definitely missing out. You're not exploring enough. You go down to... Um, I'm not. Queens. You've just told me I need to explore to go to Mud Island. And you, you go there, bird watchers go there. Lots of birds nest there and it's, you know, it depends on the season what birds are nesting. This one's come in their tens of thousands and they build their nests and they lay their eggs and they hatch them out and 
they all go. And then another bird turns up. So it's a bird watchers are absolutely in love with Mud Island. And if you go out and they do, there's regular trips out there. How do you get there? You sign up for a, a trip. And From they, Melbourne? You, you go, you go to Queen, down to Queenscliff. Generally on weekends, they're probably midweek trips as well. And you jump on a boat and half an hour later you're on Mud Island. And okay, it's like, so it's not that far, half yeah, an hour. Yeah. A bird watcher sort of guides you around the island and points out the different birds and you look at this and you look at that. Okay. That kind of reminds me of being on Galapagos. Yeah, <laughs> you go and they point out similar. all the birds. Very similar. Yeah, so I mean that's right in the middle of – oh, we, we, what have we got? We're looking at islands close to Melbourne. We've got Phillip Island, of course, yeah. you know, the motor racing track and the penguins and the sharks to eat you if you're not careful. And <laughs> seals. Um, so that's – yeah, don't that's, go swimming too much. Well, swim on the right side. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We've got Mud Island, as I was saying. We've also got, uh, which uh, any scuba diver who's learned to scuba dive in Melbourne done their open water stuff around Pope's Eye. Pope's Eye is an artificial island. You know, it was built to keep the Russians at bay. But uh, that, that's a, an island. So is that still considered an island? Yeah, but it's above sea level all the time. And it's okay. got signs right. on it and you can land on it. Even though it's artificial and it was made. And it's very popular for snorkeling and okay. scuba diving. Yeah, so I, I would definitely, you know, include Pope's Eye on my, my list. Mm. Yeah. You did mention the other one in WA, but is there another one that you had never heard of that you went to that you were just like, wow? Yeah, I, I went to four island groups in WA researching this book. Rottnest, which I had been to before, so it wasn't a first visit. Dirk Hartog, which I had not been to before, but I was blown away by. The Hootman of Brolhos Islands. <laughs> There you go. There's a well-known island name. It's it well, well-known basically for its shipwreck. Okay. Um, Australia's most famous shipwreck is the wreck of the Batavia, which went down there. And, you know, I forget what year it was, 1627, or the 1600s anyway. And it was on its way to what in those days was Batavia. Now it's Jakarta. There was an opera written around it, and it was an operatic tale of violence and mutiny and deaths and not redemption, but um, horrible justice and executions and all of that ha happened on Australian soils. You know, going out to the Hootman of Brolhos Islands and see where, seeing where the Batavia went down, well, that's um, definitely worth doing. Yeah, that sounds amazing. How would you get there? Go to Geraldton and basically there's little joy flights that fly out and they okay. fly out in the morning and they stop on one of the islands and you get off and have a look around and and I would really like to go back and spend a little bit more time there because I didn't get to do all I, I wanted to do on the Hootman of Rolhos. And then I, we'd, we've mentioned the Recherche Islands a couple of times already, but the Recherche Islands have got, there, there's like 270 or something of them. And there's only one which you could in any way at all say is inhabited because there's a campsite on it during the, the season. Then, you know, there's somebody who's there managing the campsite, but it's probably inhabited, you know, 50 days a year and the other 300 and some is uninhabited. And then the whole group is uninhabited. But there is an island on there, Middle Island, which was the one where the pirate is supposed to have hung out on when he was not stealing sheepskins. And there's a wonderful um, YouTube video clip of someone doing a uh, wingsuit flight over Middle Island oh. and it's wonderful Pink Lake. So if you Google Red Bull and Middle Island and Pink Lake and Recherche, you'll find this. And you, having seen that, you think, well, I want to go there. And How do wouldn't? you think our islands compare to islands around the world? Different sorts of islands. I mean, some islands, we, we, we do have islands that have towns and farms. You go to Kangaroo Island or Flinders Island or King Island. Each of those has a town on it and has farms on it. Magnetic Island, it's almost a suburb of Townsville. That's got cars and buses and towns so there's they, the islands vary enormously you know and then the opposite extreme the ones that have no people at all i think we have some of the most beautiful beaches and islands mm. and then you go to the bahamas again and they're a bit different but yeah. they're still beautiful but then i don't know i think we match with them i think a lot of people when they think of islands they will think of the bahamas yeah i don't know or indonesia or the philippines yeah depends what you where your mind is set at the moment greek islands you know there we go yes That's and a lot of, well, you do have great beaches, but lots of the Greek islands are just rocks. Rocks. Yeah. <laughs> They're not so comfortable to yeah. walk on. What are the biggest changes that you've seen over the years with the world and travel? Well, it's, it's not much easier in many respects. You can just look up anything online. And if you need a visa, you can very often go online and get the visa. You haven't got to go around to the embassy and 
queue oh, up yes. and get forms and fill them in and bring them back. And oh, that would have taken a long time. <laughs> still does in many places. Lots of There are places where you still have to go through all that routine. But lots of other places, you can. life is much easier. Have you noticed a difference in the way women are treated while traveling from, say, from the 70s to now? Like, do you see more women traveling? Have you seen a big change? You know, one of the, the interesting things, and I, I've just worked a little bit on a book for Lonely Planet about, not specifically about women travelers, but about places you can go to that relate in some way to a well-known woman. One of the, When they were pitching this book out to authors, they said, you know, you can go to the, should we call it a slum? The slum in Los Angeles where the Williams sisters first played tennis. Now you can find their tennis court. That's rather nice, you know, if you were in LA and if, if someone told me two blocks over that way is the first place where Serena and Venus first had a hit across the net, I'd, I'd you know, turn and go two blocks to drive by that tennis court. One, I, I wrote up a few of the um, little write-ups in this book coming out next year and some of it was about well-known women travelers Freya Stark and it was amazing how there, there is this sort of thing of women in the Middle East and I I know one woman whose name is totally escaped my mind at the moment who said that she was a journalist in the in the region and she said you know I, I've got an advantage over male journalists that I, I have this sort of honorary male status that I'm traveling around and because I'm a, a journalist and a foreigner I'm allowed access to other men just as a as it would be if I was a male journalist but I've also got access to women and if you're a male a male journalist you don't have access to women at all yeah you know, but but so see, I, I've got you know double the access a, a man would have I can do both I can go and talk to men but I can talk to women as well and a, ma uh, a male journalist would not be able to do that so you know there are there are doors open to women that are not open to men. You haven't noticed if you see now there's lots more women than what you well, there's remember? Lots, there's lots more of everybody. So <laughs> I don't think that's any necessarily you a, don't a think change. That's changed I met, in the 70s, we met women traveling by themselves. I can remember one of them I'm still friends with. Yeah, yeah okay. Go. Well, that's good to hear. Because like I said earlier, I do find that a lot of people get so shocked that I still travel by myself. People have to, women do have to be more careful, no question. But you know, they, if they want to do it, they will do it. We are approaching our destination. Ladies and gentlemen, please fasten your seatbelts for the final five. Your favourite city or town? I absolutely do not have a favourite city or town and I'm not going to answer that question because then, you know, I, I think one of the worst things to do is to sort of say, this is the best place, go there. And then everyone starts going there. I've got lots of cities I like. You know, I've left my heart in San Francisco. I could easily live in Paris. There's half a dozen cities in Rome would be great to live in. Kyoto in Japan is a wonderful city to travel around. Lots and lots of them. I'm not going to say there's one in any way whatsoever. Weirdest food you've ever eaten? Oh, probably an Australian meat pie. Um, <laughs> yeah, and when they, when they put it, what, what, are they, what do they do in Adelaide? They float it on pea soup or something? Oh, that, that has to be seriously questionable. That's not what I thought you would come out with. <laughs> uh, beaches or mountains? I take somewhere in between. I'll have a place where you can go on the mountain in the afternoon and hit the beach in the evening or vice versa. You know, it's, it's great places where, and they always, they always say, you know, that you can, there are places in France where you could be on the Côte d'Azur and go for a swim and then jump in your Ferrari and race up in winter to the ski resorts and ski the same day. You have to be pushing it to do it, but the idea you could do both is rather, rather enticing. A tourist site that you recommend is a must-see. One of the things I often find about uh, about travel is that the the must-sees we've must-seen them so often that when we eventually get there, we're slightly disappointed. You know, we've we've seen a thousand pictures of the Eiffel Tower, the Taj Mahal, which the is true because I was so disappointed when I got to the Eiffel Tower. <laughs> it's ah, oh, it's really nice. I now the last time I went there, I I rode my bicycle from London to Paris and. I just bought, I've got a place in London and I just bought a new bicycle and I thought, I need to try this bicycle out. And I thought, why not ride to Paris? So I did. How long did that take? A day and a half. A day and a half? I spent two nights on the way. Okay. And I, you know, it was a nice bicycle ride because uh, I spent one night, I spent three nights actually. So I rode down from London to the coast of Britain and spent the night on the coast and then took the ferry over the next day and rode into France and spent the night and the next day I rode really, I could have got into Paris that night, but I decided I'd just stop at the outskirts of Paris. And the next morning I was riding into Paris. I stopped at a, 
a roundabout to look at my maps. I wasn't quite sure which route to take. And this um, Frenchman came by and sort of saw me studying my map and said, where are you? And, you know, I had carriers on the back of the bike for my gear. He said, where are you doing? I said, I've just ridden from London. I'm on my way into Paris. And he said, oh, I said, I work in Paris. I'm on my way to work now. Just follow me. So I was guided into Paris from the outskirts by a French cyclist on his way to work. Oh, that's lovely. It is lovely, you know. And that's the sort of, you know, that's why one of the reasons cycling is so nice, that you do meet other cyclists. And I thought that was, you know, the absolutely perfect way to arrive in Paris, being guided into the city by someone on his way to work, a Frenchman on his way to work. And, you know, and I did ride into Paris. And I thought, well, the first thing I'm going to do is ride by the Eiffel Tower and park my bike there and get a photograph of the Eiffel Tower and my new bike in the foreground, which I did. Still haven't answered my question. Well, what was that? That was find some place that... <laughs> a tourist yeah. site that you recommend is a must-see. Well, you know, I, and it, it'll be places that, you know, you go there and you think, why have I never seen this before? Mm-hmm. And I, I was in Armenia earlier this year, and Armenia is, you know, we, we think of Christianity, that we think, you know, obviously it started Jerusalem, Bethlehem, all those things. And then we think, you know, well, off they went. They moved into Europe and the Roman Catholic Church and all those European churches. Whereas the truth is the church that Christianity did not go west into Europe at first. It went east into Asia. So the oldest churches are not the European ones. They're ones in Syria and places in Turkey or in Armenia. Armenia has wonderful churches. And you go there and the churches just blow you away. You, you, you think, why haven't I heard of this before? So. Mm. Go to Armenia, visit some churches. That would be my recommendation. Perfect. Can you say thank you in another language? Sure. Terima kasih in Indonesian. Dankeschön in German. Gracias in Spanish. Grazie in Italian. Merci beaucoup in French. Yeah, you need to be able to say thank you. And the other thing you need to be able to say is a cold beer. Cerveza fria in um, Spanish. (laughs) A few others. Very important. Well, thank you so much for joining me and chatting with me today. It's been fabulous and I wish you the best. Good. Thank you. Thanks for listening to With You Every Step, hosted by Michelle Lee. We do hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, make sure you tell everybody. If you didn't, nobody likes a Debbie Downer. Please subscribe to get up to date with our latest releases and give us a thumbs up on our social media at With You Every Step. We love to hear from you. If you have any questions or inquiries, head to the Contact Us page at our website, michellelee.com. That's also where you'll find all our blogs mentioned in the podcast. We love to hear from you and if we have inspired you to travel. Thanks for listening. Love life and adventure on.